Welcome back to Running Unopposed with Rose. And Gabe, I actually have an announcement to make. Okay. This is the last episode of Running Unopposed. From here on out, we will starting with our episode being released next week, we will be now known as the Tax Murderers. That's correct. Uh, retconned from our previous episode. We are proud to announce that we will now have an official name change. Um, yeah. Well, I'll consider it. It's either that or Tax Stantinople. Pick one. Can it at least be like New Tax City? How about, um, how about we choose between New Tax City and Taxistan? Okay, there's a joke I thought of last week after we recorded. Uh, New Tax City instead of New Jack City. And instead of a movie where Wesley Snipes plays a gangster, it's a movie about Wesley Snipes' actual history with the IRS. What's his actual history? He uh, got into the LaRouche movement and uh, stopped paying taxes and uh, went to jail. He's not still in it, is he? Uh, he's not still in jail, no. No, in the LaRouche movie. I don't know. I haven't kept up with him lately. Wesley Snipes, if you're listening, hit us up. We'd love to interview you. All right, so. ASMR. Yes, this is the ASMR podcast. Uh, welcome back to discussing Mark Thatcher's. No, I think when you, start, when you start talking about Mark Thatcher, I think I should just interrupt and start going. <laughs> Doing like an eating ASMR? Yes. That's the worst kind of ASMR. <laughs> Genuinely. I, yeah. Is that even, actually, it makes that's sense. Absolutely that that's absolutely a, a kind of ASMR. It's awful. I don't listen so, to ASMR, so I would not know. Oh, yeah. You, like you're some kind of fucking, you're not degenerate like the rest of us. I see how it is. I don't think that many people listen to it. No, quite a few people do. Regardless, happy new year, everyone. We hope you had a nice, safe new year. We hope you didn't blow your fingers off with any fireworks. Uh, and yeah, we just hope your new year went well. No, you have nothing to add? Okay. I mean, you kind of summed it up pretty nicely. That's a fair point. With so, the fingers and the happy So new getting year. back into Mark Thatcher, we picked up last time, we talked about the Alyamama arms deal, the record-breaking 45 billion British pound British sale uh, of arms to the Saudi government, and... One thing I want to emphasize that I didn't last time, the Saudi military does not sit around on its hands doing nothing. 
They actively support the U.S. in the Gulf War, among other conflicts, and are currently carrying out a very brutal campaign in Yemen, while the U.K. continues to profit from the arms trade. In short, Al-Yamami is a deal with one of the most evil countries on Earth, providing them with the most advanced technology on Earth to continue brutalizing their neighbors. One that continues to this day. And if you take away nothing else from this uh, episode about Mark Thatcher, whose career is quite silly, just remember that he bears some responsibility for that. Wait, Saudi Arabia is using weapons from that deal to do the war in Yemen? Yes. I figured they would just have newer ones by now to use. Al-Yamama is ongoing. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah. So, remember last time when you mentioned that uh, it seems like all these scandals would hurt Margaret Thatcher in the 1987 general election? Let me guess. The press, which was more Tory then than it is now even, um, uh, made sure not to mention this at all? No, it's actually funnier. Um, funnier or worse? Uh, no, it's funnier. So, it had become a massive political liability, as had Mark Thatcher's relationship to the Sultan of Brunei which I didn't find a ton about, so I won't get into. I'm just going to say the Sultan of Brunei will come up again on this podcast. Is he weird or is he just bad? Um, Both. Very much both. He's one of the richest men on Earth. Doesn't entirely answer my question, but let's continue. Yeah, I w- we'll do an episode on him at some yeah. point. I don't know a ton about him. So Sir Bernard Ingham, Margaret Thatcher's press secretary at the time, Mark once asked him how he could help Margaret win the 1987 general election. His response, in full, was three words. Leave the country. (laughs) (laughs) So um, that was how they avoided it becoming a bigger scandal. They said, look, we dealt with it. We sent Thicky Morg away to America. Oh, I thought you were going to say Dakar. If only they sent him to Dakar. Or Dakar, or however you say it. I refuse to learn French names. I don't think it's a French name. Oh, it's not? Okay. I assume not. Yeah, doesn't sound not. French. Yeah. All right. So he worked for the Lotus Car Company and the British Car Auctions Company, earning around 45,000 British pounds a year. That's not that much. No, well, each. Don't worry. He's going to make money later. You said a year. Yeah, a year from each. But still, I figured if he was going to be like... if he was That's over per- $100,000 a year in the 80s. That's... 45,000 pounds? I don't think that's over 100,000 bucks. 45,000 pounds each. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's a lot, but I figured he'd be making more as the son of a prime minister. He'll make more. Don't worry. Don't worry. If you're worried that Mark Thatcher isn't enough of a millionaire, this episode's for you. So this strategy worked well as Thatcher went on to win the 1987 general election. Labor only gained 20 seats. So, Mark Thatcher, back in... in, uh, I also saw some articles that said he left for America in 1984 and then came back for Al-Yamama. I'm not totally sure of the timeline, but he left for good after Al-Yamama in 1986 or 7. Does he live here still? No. We'll get into why. He hasn't lived here in quite a while. So, he meets his first wife, Diane Bergdorf, in Texas. And just a quick note, she is not related to Herman Bergdorf of Bergdorf Goodman. She is the daughter of Theodore Bergdorf, a millionaire car dealership owner from Texas. I didn't find much about their relationship. I imagine it wasn't noteworthy. They had two children together, Michael Thatcher, who went on to be a college football star, and Amanda Margaret Thatcher in 1989 and 1993. They divorced in 2005, and if I had to speculate, I would say it was due to Thatcher's increasing legal problems, which will be also the subject of this episode. Oh, we'll, we're going to talk. That makes a lot of sense. 
Yeah, if there was ever a good time to divorce Mark Thatcher, it was 2005. Oh, yeah. So in America, he founds a company called Monteagle Marketing. Monteagle? Monteagle, yes. What is that? Is that just a name he made up? I assume it's just two words he thought sounded cool. Oh, like Stratton Oakmont, where neither of the guys were Stratton or Oakmont? Is that a company? It was Jordan Belfort's uh, stock brokerage firm. Oh, okay. Yeah, sure. I haven't seen that movie. I'm not comparing this to Stratton Oakmont in terms of their legal um, problems. I don't know how many legal problems. For legal reasons, we are not saying this company committed fraud. (laughs) Well, also, I don't know if they did or not. I didn't. So I know they generated, Mark, a sizable amount of money. I couldn't figure out how much. They he, they worked in whiskey and clothing. Specifically, um, Mark Thatcher was apparently a clothing model for a Japanese company called Kanabo, which bought him, according to The Guardian, quote, a small personal fortune. Wait. I looked for pictures of him modeling Kanabo. I could not find them. Uh, if anyone happens to know where I can find them, email the podcast at runningonapostpod at gmail.com because I want them. Wait, he... His company was whiskey and clothing? Yeah, that appears to be. I think they were like a consulting and marketing firm. Oh, I thought you meant that they were like branding their own whiskey, but also clothing. No, no. It was like they would help companies sell stuff in America. Oh, okay. If it's, that makes sense then. Okay. Yeah, yeah it, it's, not a, it's, a, it's a pretty common industry. Yeah. Uh, he runs a security alarm business called Emergency Networks to that, uh, it, during this time. And it fails in 1996. And he becomes wanted for... Take a wild guess. Tax fraud? Tax evasion. Oh. Close. Because there will never be an episode of this podcast that doesn't involve tax evasion or tax fraud. I wouldn't say never. Actually, yeah, the Sheshul episode didn't involve any. Yeah. Just just genocide, which is not really yeah. better. That's significantly worse. Yeah. Um... So Emergency Networks also once sponsored a Dallas-area TV program to interview Mark Thatcher, and I did look for the interview, and I think I found it. Uh, I found her being interviewed by Children's Express in 1987, which was a children's-run newspaper uh, paper and website. Wait, it was run by children? Yeah, the gimmick was, was you had to be under 18 to be, to be a writer or editor there. Did adults read this? Yeah, I think. I don't know. This was like a thing in the 80s. Was this all run by nine-year-olds? No, you could be, you, you just had to be under 18. So I imagine like the editors and publishers were a little higher up. Like 16, 17. Yeah, and also like there were adults who worked there, like on the business end. Oh, But the actual writing and editing was all done by children. Oh, okay, so like the adults would hire children to do the writing. Yeah, basically. Okay. Um, I found two children who looked about 10 interviewing Mark Thatcher. Uh, and in 1987, and I found another article that said she visited Dallas in 1987, so I think that's uh, the art interview. Uh, and I'll link it in the episode description. I found it on YouTube. And I gotta say, softball interview from those kids. Nine-year-old Rose would have gone way harder. I don't think you would have cared enough at nine to go way harder. I would have gone so hard. I would have held Margaret Thatcher's feet to the fire. No, you would have probably just, you would have probably just been aloof and not talked a nine-year-old nine year you would never, talk to, would never talk to someone, let alone interview them. Nine-year-old you would never talk to someone, let alone do an interview with a 60-year-old lady. Let's be That's honest here. That's a fair here. point, yeah. 
Okay, yeah, perhaps. Well, regardless, my personal favorite quote was from the wrap-up. Rose did ac- actually did not talk to another person until uh, 2016. That's correct. <laughs> I actually lived in a hermetically sealed chamber. And that was online. Uh, she did not talk to another living person until 2018, almost two full years later. <laughs> I actually... Ang- I actually... Um, English isn't my first language. I grew up speaking uh, exclusively Esperanto, but in a country where no one speaks Esperanto. Oh, I thought you were going to say, like, you only knew how to communicate via either uh, Morse code or echolocation. <laughs> I can communicate via echolocation. No, you cannot. Yeah, if we, ever, uh, if we ever do a Patreon, I'll do an echolocation episode. You cannot communicate via echolocation. I can. I can. Do I'll it. show you off mic. Oh, yeah, sure. I can't reveal all my secrets. No, okay. You cannot (laughs) communicate via echolocation. I absolutely can. No, you cannot. (laughs) Okay, try it. No. No, let's try it. Well, it's not... Uh, Rose, the language genius, uh, wants to show Echolocation is not a language. It's a method of... It's a method of, like, sonar. Well, I'm saying it's a language, so it is right now. But it's not. Uh, Okay, well... It doesn't have grammar. uh, That's what you think. Um, Try doing it, then. No. See, Rose gestured to me that she cannot uh, do echolocation. I did no such thing. I can. Anyways, uh, one of the, the wrap-up interview with, with the children. Wait, I'm, am I doing it? No, you're just clicking. I'll show you off mic. Regardless, we need to move on. Click, click, click. Yeah. Uh, one of the children said, quote, she says she cares. I don't know if she does. Which really just kind of sums up Margaret Thatcher's career perfectly. What was the line? <laughs> She says she cares. I don't know if she does. <laughs> Which, you really nailed it, nine-year-old kid. <laughs> Did the um, nine-year-old kid have, his, have their name revealed? Uh, what, the, I think the guy was Jamie, and I forget the girl's name. Was it Jamie or the girl who... I think it was the girl. I forgot uh-huh. her name. Um, yeah, uh, the comments under that YouTube video, by the way, are incredible. I'll link it in the description. Um, he also allegedly did a hostile takeover of a company of uh, emergency networks, and local business people of, suspi- uh, of uh, in the area were suspicious because it posted earnings far above what it should have been capable of earning, which, uh, hmm, I wonder what was going on there. We say we're the land of the free, yet when people make good deals in the free market, uh, they come under fire from... Our notable socialist president of the time, Ronald Reagan. <laughs> yeah. Uh, he also lived in Switzerland at some point between 1987 and 1995, but I genuinely could not figure out when. Wait, how uh, often was he moving his kids around? Quite a bit. I was going to say, I feel like... His first kid was born in 1989, so it's possible he lived in Switzerland before they were born. Ah, uh, okay. Okay. I found different articles placed him in Switzerland at different years between those years. Why is he moving around so much? I don't know. I'm just going to link every article I read that placed him in different places. Yeah. uh, Because I genuinely could not figure it out. Okay. Um, He was there to dodge taxes because what else would he be doing? Uh, And he had to leave when he didn't have proper residency documents. So uh, Wait, so he got deported from Switzerland? Yes, he got deported from Switzerland. That I was not expecting. Uh, yeah. I figured there would be one deportation, but 
uh, we'll get oh, to no, that later. There's, there's another deportation. Don't worry. Yeah, I figured that that was going to be the deportation, not this one. Nope. Also, in 1995, there's an article from, or in 1994, there's a Telegraph article. The city had a Houston-based oil company called Ameristar that was flying back and forth to Baku, Azerbaijan, to set up deals. British Petroleum also has business in Azerbaijan, but from what I could tell, nothing, nothing really came of Marky Mark's visits. There was also an article that mentioned his takeover of Ameristar might have been illegal. Uh, that was all the article said. It might have been illegal. One thing I've realized doing research for this episode is that the exact scope and nature of Mark Thatcher's financial crimes will quite likely never be revealed because he's simultaneously too well-connected to really touch and also too insignificant to global affairs to really be worth seriously pursuing for any journalist. And also, just the timeline is so confusing, I feel like it's going to be really difficult to figure out. Yes. So in other words, he is this podcast bread and butter. Yeah, I mean... I don't know about the too well-connected thing. I mean, Bernie Madoff was uh, pretty well-connected. He is way more well-connected than Madoff. Nah, but still, like... he like His connections made Madoff look like fucking nothing. Okay, let me think. Okay, anybody at Enron, I'm sure, is very well-connected. Yeah, true. Those guys Did those guys go to jail? They went bankrupt. Yeah, but they didn't go to jail. But either way, they faced consequences, which yeah. is my main point. Yeah, Mark Thatcher, you'll see. He doesn't really face any. Uh, so he and his family had to Constantia, a wealthy and, of course, mostly white suburb of Cape Town, South Africa. Wait, when was this? 95? 95. Okay. Now, don't worry. In case you're wondering what Mark Thatcher thought of apartheid. This was after apartheid. <laughs> yes. But in case you're wondering what his opinions were, just on the concept of apartheid generally. He was once asked about uh, Margaret Thatcher's staunch opposition to sanctioning the apartheid regime in South Africa. And he said... And I quote, this is his full quote, my sympathy is with the white community, the struggling white community. That's not a British accent. I, I know. And I can't it's do not British. South African. Yeah, I know. He just said in full, my sympathy is with the struggling white community. Oh, that's uh, so, telling. So, um, yeah. Because you know who was really suffering under apartheid? White people. They that really had it so rough. Yes, that is. To clarify, apartheid is bad. Yeah, that is sarcasm. <laughs> this podcast does not support the apartheid South African regime. <laughs> Are you cutting that? I'm not going to cut that I don't support apartheid no. South Africa. No, just like, just leave it when I say, oh, it's sarcasm. Yeah, I'm going to leave it when you say it's sarcasm. Yeah. I, yeah. Uh, he is also supposedly at this point worth around 60 million great British pounds, which he says is far more than he's actually worth. But he also never said by how much, so I think it's safe to assume he is a liar. Although, I mean, you can't expect someone to just reveal their exact net worth to the world. Uh, when it's constantly a source of controversy, yes, yes, you can. Yeah, actually. Yeah. As soon as I said it, I realized, wait, you're doing crimes every day. Yeah, um, yeah, as soon as, yeah I realized, basically. As soon as I said that, I realized, wait, you're doing crimes every day. Actually, you should tell us. Yeah, exactly. Um, so I think they moved in 1995, uh, and he became wanted in the U.S. by the IRS after he moved to South Africa. I had a lot of difficulty establishing a timeline, but I did my best, listener. In 1995, a book came out that claims he gets a business deal in Dubai by providing a handwritten note from his mother. Which, um, yeah, I believe that. Wait, wasn't he 42? Yes. And he's still relying on notes from his mom? Yes. Yes. Maybe we're more alike than I thought. 
Gabe's, Gabe is also the son of a former British prime minister. We won't reveal which one. Oh, no, not that. I'm just incompetent. Oh, okay. Yeah, sure. I think you're very competent, Gabe. I don't know. Every time I've tried to commit tax fraud, it doesn't go well, so... <laughs> parody. Parody. Par- that is a joke. <laughs> yeah. Kidding. That is, like... I know we make that joke a lot, that we say parody, but for that one, you really do have to say it, because, yeah, the government does actually care. IRS, if you're listening, please do not talk to us. We're good. We don't make any money from this podcast. Uh, he's also briefly implicated in this thing called the Pergao Dam Affair, when Britain paid Malaysia a lot of money uh, to build a dam in Malaysia, and in exchange, Malaysia awarded Britain a £1.3 billion arms contract. So, because if there's one thing, like, Britain in the post-colonial era loves doing, it's selling weapons. Well, that's kind of how they, that's kind of a a way they kind of remain their uh, diplomatic relations with a lot of these countries in the world because they can't have, like, direct control. Yes, So, exactly. like, by propping up their militaries and stuff, that kind of gives, that gives them a lot of leverage. Yeah, which is... Uh, I was going to go on the record and say the global arms trade is quite bad, and we are very much against it yeah. on this podcast. And it will probably come up again on this podcast. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Now, later in 1998, he catches the attention of the South African police force. Why, you might ask? Wait, can I guess? Sure. Is it going to be something surprisingly mundane or something really weird I never would guess? Or is it just going to be what he's always been doing? It's so much weirder than anything you could possibly guess. I was going to guess either tax evasion or uh, public urination. (laughs) Which one is closer? It's sort of of the exact center of those two things. Okay, can I guess? Yeah, hit me. Um, uh, Try to wrestle with a leopard imported from bangladesh but did not have the proper uh permits to do so because he did it because there was some because he tried to exploit some loophole in cape town uh local legislation but did it the wrong way and he (laughs) went to jail for four days after that (laughs) no it's not quite that weird um oi you got a license to wrestle that tiger mate (laughs) wait so what happened wait can i guess can I, let me guess. Um, okay, I'm going he, to give wait, you a hint. Wait, oh, uh, can it's I just, a 1999 film by the Wachowski sisters. Okay, let me guess. Um, uh, he tried to do the Matrix in real life, but just ended up like with, but just like ended up uh, doing ayahuasca and then going into a uh, Pretoria supermarket with a paintball gun and just started uh, shooting cans in the produce aisle, in the uh, canned goods aisle. <laughs> I wish. Both of these are so much better. Okay, one last guess. Okay, hey, um, uh, got in trouble for because he tried to make money in some sort of it's always sunny in Philadelphia type scheme where a guy who he thought was his dad, um, he went to business with a guy who tried to lie to him about being his dad and like do like a naked sword fighting show. <laughs> uh, Mark Thatcher's dad actually does not come up again in this episode. All right. Um, we had a minor technical issue. Uh, we've been recording in person for this episode as well as the last episode, and uh, our voice recording box just sort of died mid-sentence. But we are back. But we've returned. Uh, so we were talking in 1998, Mark Thatcher, uh, he caught the attention of the South African police force. And now, you're probably wondering why. Gabe did some fun riffs about it, but now I'm going to tell you really why. Uh, he had a loan sharking business. 
you want to know what the name of it was? Can I guess? Yeah. Um. Uh. I'm gonna guess that his um uh his scheme was going to be like um uh not a person ink or something, and he was thinking like. Well, they can't scam, or it's like this business doesn't exist. dot com or something. And he was like, "Oh, <laughs> it's like, they can't scam it's like the a AI bi- generated they, people." Yeah, and he was like, "Oh, uh, the British government can't get, can't indict me if the business doesn't exist." That is almost as good. Uh, the actual business company, you ready for this? It's called Matrix. Oh, I thought you were gonna just say. I thought it was just gonna be like, in, like indicters in corporate. Like I thought it was gonna be like scumbag ink or something. <laughs> and yeah, you, you ever think Mark Thatcher like fancies himself sort of Neo in the Matrix? No, I I like to imagine Mark Thatcher completely naked, surrounded by goo. Um, I can't even cut, let's up the surrounded by goo part. <laughs> <laughs> all right, I guess this riff didn't land. They can't all be winners. <laughs> Right, we'll, we'll cut that out. No. Oh. I'll keep it in. I If my joke fails, I keep it in. I don't care. Oh. You, I think that people should know that I'm not funny all the time. Sometimes I mess up. They probably assume that you're not funny all the time, though. <laughs> like, I feel like they probably know that we edit. Yeah, that's true. Um, so you want to know who the main clients were of uh, Mark Thatcher's company, Matrix? Can you give me a hint? Uh, people you really shouldn't be running a loan sharking business around. More specifically, that's a lot of people. Um, people who might have had some involvement in the apartheid regime. Oh, um, uh, not P.W. Botha. He was dead. No, it's not specific. It's just um, groups of people. It's okay. not specific Oh, just people. white South Africans who worked for the National Party? No, um... Is that what it was called? The National Party? <laughs> I think so. Um, no, it was police officers, civil servants, and soldiers. Oh, yeah, that's not... Which, um, listener, if you ever want to run a loan sharking company, do not work... W- do not... Do loans to the police. It will end badly for you. Well, if anything... Especially not if you're charging 20% on those loans, like Mark Thatcher was. Well, if anything, that I think do you th- I think this is just my um, uh, speculation. What he was trying to do was get it so intertwined with bureaucracy that if they went at, that the police went after him, they'd be going after themselves as well. <laughs> so he was like, oh, if the government's in on the scheme, the government can't prosecute me for the scheme. Yeah, um, turns out um, they could. (laughs) Um, Basically, he would send private debt collectors, mercenaries, essentially, after his clients when they didn't, when he didn't pay. Were they really mercenaries? I mean, they were like, they weren't as high level as mercenaries. They were more sort of like hired thugs. But were they killing people? No. Or debt? Okay, mercenaries kill people. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, that's true. Okay, so these were just, these were just uh, Yeah, it was more like bouncers. Okay. Like he probably just went to South African clubs and found like the biggest, largest Afrikaners he could find and was like, oh wait, you want to work for me? (laughs) I don't think he talked like that. He talks like that, yeah. yeah, You can look up Mark Thatcher. He sounds totally Australian. (laughs) (laughs) So... Uh, naturally, the police got pretty mad at him when he sent private debt collectors after them. Uh, he was able to say in court that the officers he was lending to were defrauding him. Which, you know, knowing the South African police force, eh, maybe. <laughs> wait, def- wait, defrauding as in, like, not paying their loans? Yes, not paying their loans. Wait, but if he was a loan shark, then, <laughs> then he's basically saying, they're, th- he's basically saying, uh, they took advantage of me while I was trying to take advantage of them during my criminal activity, and that's not fair. Loan sharking's not illegal in South Africa. It's not? At least it wasn't then. It might be now. Oh. Okay. Yeah. Uh, South Africa in the 90s was kind of a libertarian paradise in a lot of ways. 
but not really. No, in a lot of ways, because they like hadn't really set up like a ton of regulations yet. Yeah. Anyways, um, the Telegraph said it involved. How many people do you think were involved in this scheme? Can you give me a general ballpark? Um, it's triple digits high. Nine hundred fifty. Extremely close, nine hundred. However, Price is Right rules: you went over, you win nothing. I win nothing, or I went. Oh, I went over. Yeah, you went over, so therefore oh. you win nothing. Sorry. Oh, but if you go under, you win something. Yes, that's Price oh. is Right rules. Okay. Which is also the which is actually an official law in America because we love game shows so much. I never watched it, so I don't really know. I've never actually watched The Price is Right. Uh, when I was younger, me and my grandmother would watch Jeopardy, and then we would stay on to watch Wheel of Fortune. And I always felt so smart when I got the stuff on Wheel of Fortune. Uh, I was like 11. <laughs> when the word was like sky. No, it's usually it's full sentences. It's okay. not words. I'm looking at the sky. I don't know. It's <laughs> something that doesn't. Usually it's like phrases, like idioms yeah. and stuff. Uh, the Telegraph also claimed he was involved in a business selling aviation fuel to countries across Africa via his company Ameristar. I have no reason to doubt this. I didn't find a ton about Ameristar or his dealings in Africa. But uh, considering what he did in a few years, I'm going to say he was involved in the African oil industry. Selling aviation. If he's selling aviation fuel. Yeah. Which uh, is going to come back to bite us in just a second because... Or, uh, he might have just been drilling it in America and selling it to countries in Africa. No, Although was, Africa, Africa has, has a lot of oil, of oil, so... No, he was drilling in Africa. And uh, are you familiar with the Wanga coup, Gabriel? Because uh, we're about to get into it. I know how it failed, and he was basically hired South African mercenaries, but I don't want to tell the full story and i also do not know the full story so. okay well i have spent quite a lot of time researching the full story and i think i got it so essentially some ba- a quick background on equatorial guinea the republic of equatorial guinea became independent in 1968 under the leadership of francisco messias and gamma he was quite dictatorial and ruled until 1979 when his nephew, Teodoro Obiang and Gamma Mbasogo, took power in a coup. By the way, future episode topics um, this entire family. Oh, yeah. We're going to cover the Ngama family. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, so I'm not going to go too much into him. Uh, a quick note about names. Obiang is his surname and Gamma and Mbasogo are parents' surnames. News sources refer to him as President Obiang, not President Mbasogo. So I will do the same here. So he's been the leader of Equatorial Guinea since 1979. I think he's the longest serving head of state in Africa. And uh, he's quite dictatorial. Uh, and he was president in Equatorial Guinea in 2004 when the Wanga coup was attempted. He's not the most popular leader. Equatorial Guinea is quite poor and very autocratic. But you want to know something that was found there in the, ni- in the early 90s that makes them quite of interest to the Western powers? Oil? Yes. Equatorial Guinea actually has the th- is the th- produces the third most oil in Africa of any country, despite being tiny. I guess that kind of makes sense because I think Africa has a lot of natural resources. I don't know how much oil it has because a lot of its natural resource wealth is minerals and gems. I know. Yes, um, specifically the oil. The two, I forget what the other two countries in Africa that have more oil than Equatorial Guinea are. I know one of them is Nigeria. I forget what the other one is. Maybe Egypt? Possibly. Not sure. But regardless, this makes them quite of interest to the Western powers. So, a coup was organized. 67 South African and Angolan mercenaries were hired to overthrow the government and replace President Obiang with Severo Moto, a major opposition figure to Obiang who runs a government in exile in Spain. 
The coup was most likely initiated by Severo Moto. Uh, he because you know how much he offered uh, to the mercenaries. Each or all together? All together. How many mercenaries were there? Sixty-seven. Sixty-seven mercenaries. I'm gonna go upwards of a million per mercenary. So uh, not even close. Less or more? Way less. Oh, it, oh, this is. I thought. Oh, I thought you were gonna say that this was like a lot of money. This is a no. This is a being. This is being very underpaid for the job of overthrowing a president and possibly killing them. Yes. Okay, um, I'm going to guess $1 million, er, $800 total. <laughs> Not, let's see. Uh, $1.8 million, which oh, I, was gonna I guess just did the one, math. I was going to guess $1 million, and then I was like, and then I was going to say $1.8, and then I was like, no, it's just $800. <laughs> no, uh, $1.8 million, which, if my math is right, comes out to around $27,000 per soldier. Which seems low for overthrowing a government. However, considering it would be over in like three days, not a bad paycheck. That's certainly more than I make in three days. But still a risk you're taking. Oh, absolutely. Uh, Well, he was also going to offer them, what else? Oil rights. Okay. Because, actually, I'll get into that in a second. So, uh, one of them, this is where Simon Mann comes into our story. Simon Mann is a very experienced mercenary. He used to run two very famous mercenary companies, Executives Outcomes and Sandline International. Both of them uh, went down in flames and had massive scandals. Uh, Sandline International brought down the entire government of Papua New Guinea when it went down. Damn. Yeah, they were uh, hired to fight in the Bougainville conflict, and it was a whole mess. When we eventually cover Simon Mann on this podcast, we'll get into it. But... I think that's what was going on here, because Simon Mann, with Executive Outcomes, he, uh, one thing he did, just, you know, as a side note, uh, he hired a lot of ex-white South African uh, army guys, because of course he did. And I guess all these were guys who were in the army in the late 70s and early 80s? Yeah, pretty much. Um, and uh, what he would do, this was sort of his business model, uh, Basically, his, this was his big innovation in the private mercenary business. He would go to companies uh, and would accept payment in the rights to... Or, sorry, go, sorry, he would go to cash-strapped countries and he would accept payment in the form of access to natural resources. He would go to an African government that didn't have a lot of money and was facing some sort of security threat to the regime, be it an assert, a low-level insurgency or a full-scale civil war. This was Simon Mann? Yes. Okay. And he would say, hey... We'll support you with our very experienced, uh, accomplished mercenaries and large amount of weapons in exchange for, say, we get to run a diamond mine in your country when the, when this, as this happens. Were there, was he always trading for rights or were there just times where like a bag of diamonds would do the trick? No, he would also sometimes take money, but his big innovation in the field of the private mercenary industry hmm. was accepting payment in the form of natural resources. I'm just surprised he had to do that because I feel like the people would be cash-strapped, but if you have that much natural resources, I figured the leaders would sell them and siphon off the money. Yeah, but you can make a lot more money if you own the diamond mine versus getting a 5% stake in the diamond mine. Yeah, but I just figured that it wouldn't be, that the that these leaders would not be cash-strapped to the point of needing to give, like, m- mining rights, if that makes sense. Uh, I'm not sure they needed to, but he convinced them somehow. Hmm. Uh, and the reason I say Moto was most likely the one who had the idea for the coup uh, is because the plan was to install him as the new president once they ousted Obiang. Uh, and also, this was not the first time he attempted to do this. He had a previous coup attempt in 1997. Wait, and was he in Spain at this point? Yes. Uh, by 2005? He's lived most of his life in Spain. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah. yeah. 
Yes. So this was hardly a secretive operation. These mercenaries were quite open about their plans to do this, calling it the Wanga coup and saying it'll be easy money. Uh, I think Wanga is slang for money. I'm not a hundred percent sure though. I feel like if there's I feel like if you're going to launch a coup against somebody who is known for being ruthless and autocratic, you don't want to just brag about it at random. Yeah, I don't know how good the Equatorial Guinean Foreign Intelligence Service is. But still, that doesn't mean you have to just go openly bragging about it. If I were hired to overthrow a government, I would shut up about it. But that's just me. Uh, so supposedly, they would discuss it in bars around Cape Town in London. Nick Dutois, a former member of the 32 Battalion of South Africa's Defense Forces, one of the most decorated units during, what else, the Border War, where they invaded Namibia. They were, he was heavily involved in the coup, as were other members of the 32 Battalion, who uh, did some not great things in Namibia, shockingly. So, on March 7th, 2004, a plane flight flies into Harare National Airport from South Africa. Uh, Simon Mann and two other men, whose names I couldn't find, were arrested on the, were waiting on the runway, and they were arrested because Zimbabwean police figured that, that there were three crew members for a Boeing two, two, uh, 727, uh, and, he, and he noticed they were planning to transport 64 South African-based mercenaries and roughly 100,000 British pounds worth of firearms for use in toppling President Obiang. Yeah, they did really did not do a good job of this. Yeah, they were found out by like the Zimbabwean customs Wait, police. Did they even did they chartered their own plane? I assume though. Yes, they did. But you saw they saw the land at the Zimbabwean airport. Gotcha. I feel wait, if they could hi- find all these mercenaries, they didn't know a guy in Zimbabwe who could just kind of arrange for them to just land. Apparently not, or they did and didn't feel a need to. This is uh, this is really bad planning. Just imagine being a Zimbabwean customs unit customs officer you have never had to do anything difficult in your life you just check and make sure the bananas aren't rotten you make sure the beer is cold maybe you steal a few for yourself and suddenly you see 64 gigantic men armed with a hundred thousand british pounds worth of a lot of people don't like did not like robert mugabe so i'm sure they actually were pretty busy oh actually that's a fair point yeah i was gonna say didn't he get (laughs) cooed eventually uh sort of yeah yeah. Although yeah. to be fair, he was like ninety. So yeah, yeah. My point is, I feel like you probably like, especially considering he kicked out a lot of those white people. I feel like at least a few of them tried to come back and, uh, you know, cause some cause a ruckus. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe we'll cover Mugabe at some point. According to a Zimbabwean government official, they went to inspect the weapons at the airport, and you wanna know what the mercenaries did? Um, they all wore name tags saying, "Hi, I'm a mercenary, and my name is," and then they would write their name down. <laughs> Oi, I'm a mercenary. My name's Nick Dutois. <laughs> yeah, it's it's like the name tags. You know the name tags where it's like, hi, my name is Rose. And I'm going to overthrow the government of yeah, Equatorial Guinea. That's probably, I assume that they got those on, that they got those custom made, but didn't realize that they were only supposed to wear them un, um, until they had entered the palace already? Uh, yes, that it was the plan. Wait, However, actually? No. Yeah, I the mercenaries so. pulled out guns and told the customs officers to step back before handcuffing them and taking them away. Uh, I didn't see any articles mentioning a large-scale shootout with the Zimbabwean police. Somehow this ended without that happening, and Mann and the others getting arrested. I'm not totally sure how. All I can think of is they arrested Mann quickly, and the rest of them gave up. Wait, but then how did this fail exactly? They're able to... Well, because they all got arrested in Zimbabwe without they, even making it to Equatorial Guinea. But I'm, but I'm saying they put, but they were able to uh, hold the uh, 
patro- um, the customs uh, officers at gunpoint. Yeah, but other customs officers, they'd already arrested Simon Mann by this point. Yeah, but still, I figured if the, if these guys are armed with guns and able to hold uh, these guys yeah, hostage, but then... the leader, also known as the guy who's paying them, was sitting at a Zimbabwean prison. But he didn't pay them already? No, you get paid after the job. That's how every job works. Yeah, I mean, sometimes you get paid in advance. Uh, I don't think when you're overthrowing a government, you get paid in advance. I don't know. I feel like... It in my be... experience, as in my extensive mercenary work across Africa, Sarcasm, by the I way. never once got paid in advance. Sarcasm. <laughs> Sarcasm, yes. I don't know, but I, I feel like just if you're going to do a job that big, I don't know how many people would be willing to risk their lives to not get paid in advance because then at least, you know, they could give it to their families or something. A lot of these guys do not have families. I'm sure some of them... I'm a sure lot of mercenaries don't really... like. They just kind of go from place to place, yeah. Yeah, because do you think you could keep a family if your job is to murder people in Africa and constantly you're moving around? No, you can't have a family. I'm I'm sure at least a few of them do. Some of them probably do, but a lot of them don't. A lot of mercenaries tend to not. Yeah. Is this the end or? No, not even close. We got to get into the Wonga coup and the aftermath. Wait, this is the Wonga coup? Yeah, but we're we're getting more into it because the trial was also quite explosive. Um... They told Equatorial Guinea's government about this, uh, Zimbabwe, that is, and 18 other people, along with Nick Dutois, were already in Equatorial Guinea as, like, prep work, Uh, and they were also arrested in Equatorial Guinea. Uh, And also, interestingly enough, um, a lot of the mercenaries were not white. Most of them were black Africans who served in the SADF during apartheid. Was that so that they could more easily blend in into Equatorial Guinea? Or yeah, that just, I would imagine. Or that, was that just kind of a uh, circumstance? Probably both. Um, so that Simon Mann and Nick Dutois are both white, though, and they're also both future episodes. Just to be clear, the South African guys in Zimbabwe were white, but the guys on the ground in Equatorial Guinea were black? Uh, Nick Dutois was leading. So Simon Mann was leading the team in Zimbabwe. He's white. Yeah. Nick Dutois was leading the team in Equatorial Guinea. He's white. Most of the actual rank and file soldiers were black. Oh, even in Zimbabwe? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, because um, in some ways it sort of mir- mimics the South African Defense Force as a whole. A lot of black soldiers, but always led by white officers. Well, I mean, to be fair, South Af- even during apartheid, South Africa was majority black, so that yeah. does make sense. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, even Rhodesia had a majority black army. Yeah. How white was? How much of the population of Rhodesia was white? Not that much. I figured it was a minority, but I figured <laughs> I it was. I think it prob- was like maybe 10%. <laughs> yeah. Rhodesia will come up again on this podcast. Don't worry. Yes. <laughs> um. On March 31st, Simon Mann sends a letter to his wife and legal team, which is intercepted by South African authorities. It says, Our situation is not good, and it is very urgent. It may be that getting us out comes down to a large splodge of wonga. Of course, investors did not think this would happen. Did I? Dot, dot, dot. The lawyers get no reply from Smelly and Scratcher, who asked them to ring back after the Grand Prix was over. Which one's we- Smelly and... S- which, one's Mar- which one is Mark? We'll get into it. We need heavy influence of that so- of the sort that Smelly, Scratcher, David Hart, and it needs to be used heavily in now. Once we get into a real trial scenario, we are fucked. So, Smelly is, unfortunately, not Mark Thatcher. Smelly was a nickname for... Ellie Khalil. Uh, Who? He was a Lebanese, British, Israeli, Syrian uh, 
uh, Canadian. He had a lot of nationalities. Businessman. Was he hired by all these countries, or did he have citizenship in all of these countries? Uh depends on the time period you're talking about. But was he ethnically from all of these countries? He was a. He was a. He was ethnically Lebanese and from Nigeria, and he was heavily involved in Africa's oil industry. And just and, and just ended up kind of doing business in Israel and Canada at some point. Not Israel. Did I say Israel? I did not mean to say Israel. Oh, maybe I misheard you. Yeah. No. Uh, Canada, Britain, Syria, and Lebanon. Okay. Yeah. Um. So. Uh, well, yeah. So he let he was worth hundreds of millions of pounds. Uh, he, in general, is um, probably a future episode topic. He's very interesting and sort of connected to a lot of elite British happenings. He allegedly pl- provided about $750,000 towards the plot. That so, is a lot of money. Yeah, nearly half. Uh, Scratcher was supposedly a longtime nickname for Mark Thatcher, but I didn't find it outside of the context of the Wanga coup. Uh, he allegedly put in around 285000 for the plot, and um, what was he going to get in return for this? Probably oil rights, because his company Ameristar was heavily involved in the oil industry in Africa. Right. He also uh, bought the the helicopter that they were going to use, supposedly. Uh, however, he claims he did not know that they were going to use it to overthrow the government, which uh, seems like a weird thing to not know. Just buying a helicopter for a guy, totally normal thing to do. Even after giving the guy money to overthrow the government? <laughs> yeah, there's also that. Um now, he was arrested in South Africa because they, shockingly, eventually put in place laws against mercenary activity, and, the tri- and he almost went to trial, but it didn't really happen. Uh, however, the, pl- the pilot of the plane, Kraus Stale, I Afrikaner names are really hard. Wait, can I see how it's spelled? It might be Kraus Steel. Yeah, okay, we'll go with Kraus Steel. Uh, he said, quote, I met Mark three or four times. He was a partner in the venture. He That's put not in a around $250,000. The money was wired to my company account in various installments. What accent is this? I don't know. You're talking like Cad Bane on Star Wars The Clone Wars. <laughs> the helicopters cost around 600 an hour plus 5000 <sighs> for the pilots and 10000 a month for special insurance. I need to get a new podcast. You don't. Thatcher's defense said he gave money to AAA Aviation, Steele's company, for other business ventures. Steele said, quote, he knew what was going on. I only knew him in the context of the Equatorial Guinea business. I didn't know him before, and I haven't met him since. Lawyers also got a hold of phone records which showed calls between Mark Thatcher, Ellie Khalil, and Jeffrey Archer who was further implicated in the coup attempt when bank records showed he paid $134,000 to Simon Mann's company, Logo Logistics. Wait, was Jeffrey Archer who I'm thinking he is? Uh, if you're thinking the main character of the hit TV show, Archer, no. No. Was he a Tory politician in the UK? Yes. Wait, did he run for mayor of London? Yes. What? Yeah. Yeah, he's just like a Tory businessman. Wait, this was the guy who ran for the mayor of London ended up being implicated in the Wonga coup? Yes. Holy shit. The the tendrils of this fucking coup stretch everywhere, and we will cover several other people involved in it over the next, and, over various episodes. And this is for a country, like, like, regarding a country that I will say most people, like, even a good amount of people probably in country, in Africa and countries kind of close to it d- don't know what it is. Uh, yeah, it's important in Africa because it's got oil, but that's about it. But I'm sure there are plenty of people in Africa who don't know what it is. Yeah, probably. Uh, there were other people implicated in financing uh, this coup as well, 
Um, I didn't do a ton of research into them, but just some names. Tim Bell, a former advisor to Margaret Thatcher. David Tremaine, a British South African businessman. And Greg Wales, a London real estate magnate. Now, something weird about this coup is that the British government knew it was going to happen. Jack Straw, who was Foreign Secretary of the UK at the time, was told about the plot in December of 2003 and again in January 2004. He was informed by Johan Smith, a former South African Special Forces commander. Smith also told Michael Westfall, a close confidant of... Donald Rumsfeld. No, he's American. Oh, well, you said da-da-da-da, and I was thinking, oh, it was going to be... No, it was Donald Rumsfeld. Oh, okay. Straw even acted upon it, attempting to get British citizens in Equatorial Guinea to leave. Jack Straw also publicly lied, saying he had no prior knowledge of the coup attempt in Parliament in August of 2004, and he didn't admit any prior knowledge until November 17th, 2004. This caused quite a stir in Britain, but somehow Jack Straw continued to be Foreign Fat Secretary for like two or three more years. I mean... Maybe, well, Tony Blair was prime minister, and they called him Teflon Tony for a reason. Yeah, I guess so. I guess maybe there was some sort of a, maybe there was some sort of trickle-down effect where Blair's ability to avoid scandal kind of extended to other members of his government. <laughs> yeah, um, it trickle-down economics doesn't work, but trickle-down immunity to scandals does work. I, I don't know, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. That's essentially the story of the Wanga coup. It was a total mess from start to finish. Uh, It was sort of one last hurrah for the South African mercenary class, and it ended so poorly that almost none of them made it to Equatorial Guinea. Uh, Did anyone die? No. Wait, Simon Mann spent five years in a Zimbabwean prison. That does not sound fun. No, he, um, he was in good spirits, but he definitely, talking about it, he definitely made it sound not fun. I, uh, listener. Is he still alive? Yeah, he's still alive. Listener, I do not recommend going to prison in Zimbabwe. Or... Just don't do anything that will get you thrown in prison anywhere. Yeah. Yeah, li- we do not advocate our listeners going to jail. Uh, and if you do go to jail, try not to make it in Zimbabwe or Equatorial Guinea. I was going to say, neither place sounds like a fun place. Yeah, no, they both have like notoriously awful prisons. Uh, and pr- t- and Teodoro Obiang in Gama Mbasogo is still president of Equatorial Guinea to this day, uh, despite being quite old. How old is he? 80s? He's in his 80s. He's not Mugabe old, but he's getting up there. He's old, but he's not ancient. Yeah. Mugabe he, was like 89, 90? Mugabe was, I think, 91. Oh, wow. Yeah, Mugabe was ancient. He's dead, right? No, he's still alive, I think. I th- could have sworn he died like two years ago. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. Well, look. And what of Mark Thatcher? Well, what happened to him? Well, he pled guilty to breaking the aforementioned anti-mercenary laws in 2005. And you want to know how much he was fined? Eight dollars. Zero? Up higher. Higher than eight? Yes. Six digits. But low six digits. Fourteen. Wait, is, are the digits after the decimal point or are they after a comma? <laughs> a comma? Oh, 150000 Pretty close. $174,000 in today's money. At the time, it was three million South African rand. Uh, for our British listeners, that's about 146,000 Great British Pounds. Uh, which is not a lot, considering his personal wealth is estimated at 60 million Great British Pounds. However, he did also pay his own bail of 2, of two million rand, or 166,822 British Pounds That's in still not a lot for him. Still not a lot of money, no. 
Uh, he was also robbed in his holding cell and lost his shoes, jacket, and cell phone, which is pretty funny. Wait, he got robbed <laughs> in his holding cell? Yeah. Imagine you're just like a regular South African criminal. You got picked up for pickpocketing, and you're in a holding cell with Mark fucking Thatcher. You can't not rob him. That would be... <laughs> in, I would just... Uh, I, would, uh, I would watch that comedy, yes. Uh, well, yes, number one. Uh also, new business idea just popped into my head. Uh, Robbing people in prison? No, uh, <laughs> making a sit or new television idea that we make that are that we make that into a sitcom. Okay, I'm gonna pitch Mark Thatcher and ask him if he wants to go back to South African prison, but with cameras this time. No, it's or it's not a reality. No, it's a sitcom. It's not reality TV. Oh, okay. I was thinking it could be like Scared Straight, but with Mark Thatcher. No, it's 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 sitcom. Oh, okay. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Did I say reality TV? No, I just got okay. confused. Um, he had a four-year prison sentence that he never served because uh, you all know what he did and you all know where he went? South er, Africa? He left South Africa in 2005. And went to huh? Britain? Well, he couldn't go back to the U.S. because of his aforementioned tax dodging. Uh, also, his wife left him. I forgot to mention that, which is pretty funny. Um, so he lived in Monaco for a year. But uh, even the people of Monaco didn't want him, which should give you an idea of how completely insufferable he is. Uh, he went back to Switzerland, who also didn't want him. So he went back to his ancestral Wait. homeland, the UK, but moved to Gibraltar. Wait, was he being chased out by the government, or did he just get bored in Switzerland and Monaco after uh, No, he yet again did not uh, have proper documents to stay in Switzerland. Oh, uh, okay. Mark Thatcher loves, like, semi-illegally emigrating. It's, like, his favorite thing to do other than not and pay taxes. Does he still live in Gibraltar, as far as we know? Possibly. We're not sure. Um, he married his second wife, Sarah Jane Russell, from an aristocratic uh, family. And he continues to use the title of the Honorable or Sir to this day. Because you want to know something funny. They did not take away his knighthood? He is technically a baron. Wait, can you have your knighthood taken away, even? Yes. And he hasn't? He isn't. Yeah. No. But he's knighted, right? No, he's a baron. Oh, okay. You can be a baron and a knight, right? No, he's not knighted, though. He's just a baron. Can you be both? I think so. But he isn't. Uh, he was, his father was appointed a baron in t 1990, and therefore he got to be one. Uh, some people wanted to strip him of his title after the Wonga coup, but uh, I guess Queen Elizabeth just never got around to it. She forgot. Well, I feel like there were also a lot more influent a lot more important things to deal with than margaret thatcher's fail son yeah that's possible she it's also possible she just didn't care there were i was gonna say britain was involved in the iraq war uh <laughs> yeah and that went so well there was that there was stuff with the eu yeah britain loves doing there's a with lot the EU. there's a lot more to pay not anymore yeah. um uh but uh you know there's there's a lot more press stuff that was in people's minds yeah as for the other coup plotters, they served a few years in either Equatorial Guinea or Zimbabwe, uh, depending on which one arrested them. In Simon Mann's case specifically, he bounced back and forth between them because they transferred him. Uh, and the last ones were released in November of 2009. So they served a uh, little over five years. That feels five like a half, pretty light sentence for trying to overthrow the government of Equatorial Guinea. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, none of them were Equatorial Guinean or Zimbabwean citizens. Oh, yeah, so it would cause a crisis if they just executed them. Yeah, or held them for too long. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and the thing about the Wanga coup is it was never going to succeed. All these guys were like 60 years old, and there weren't that many of them. They still had guns, though. 
Yeah, and what? But what do you think was going to happen when Equatorial Guinea saw an unauthorized flight full of heavily armed foreigners, including two extremely famous mercenaries, landing in their country? That they just wouldn't do anything? I mean, I feel like if this was well planned, they probably would have used fake names or gotten fake documentation or something. Yeah, maybe. But I just looking at it, it just it feels like this was never going to work, and these guys are, were just in it for the love of the game. Simon Man probably doesn't know how to do anything else besides this. You want to know what Nick Dutois does now? Uh, you want to know what he started doing the second he got out of prison? Works at a PMC? Became an arms dealer. Oh. I was close. <laughs> yeah. Uh, this was like the last stand of the old guard of proper geezers. Really? The, la- the last stand? Yeah, kind of. Simon Mann wrote a lot about this failed coup in his book, Cry Havoc, which I'll read when we do our episode on him. But until then, I don't have much else to say. Uh, I just got a couple more things to go over. Uh, one weird connection is that Riggs Bank, the bank that paid for Simon Mann to do this, uh, Riggs Bank also worked closely with Obiang personally, handling payments he takes from oil companies, mostly ExxonMobil and Hess. That's actually, so they're playing both sides. They're so literally they're- playing both sides, yes. They worked closely with both Simon Mann and President Obiang. And I think there might have been more U.S. involvement uh, in this than generally thought, as Riggs Bank was based in the U.S., is based in D.C., quite shady. And, uh, for example, it did a lot of work to make sure Pinochet could keep his personal fortune back back when he fell. Uh, Riggs Bank will probably come up again on this podcast. (laughs) But considering how little regulation there is of the financial sector in this country, it would not shock me if the Bush administration just did not really know about this. That's entirely possible. Especially with uh, Dick Cheney's um, uh, hands being full with the uh, the faltering uh, war effort in Iraq. Yes, however, uh, according to Simon Mann, Ellie Khalil approached him about organizing the coup, and, and the CIA actually initially floated the idea to Khalil. However, they backed out once they saw it had too much risk of going wrong. Well, not just that, but also, I mean, if the only word is Simon Mann, I take that with a grain of salt. Yeah. Um, he also claimed he bought the plane they used from the Air Force and that their main pilot was a CIA pilot. Uh, he claimed that their main pilot was a CIA pilot, and he said Portuguese, British, South African, U.S., and, and, uh, uh, British intelligence all knew. British intelligence are confirmed to have known. Uh, Spanish intelligence probably knew, as we'll get into in a second. U.S. intelligence is also confirmed to have known via, uh, Michael Westfall, via Rumsfeld. Uh, I don't know anything about it in Port- about Portuguese intelligence. I couldn't find it. Same with South African intelligence. Uh, however, Thabo Mbeki was quite close to Simon Mann, so you can read into that. That actually surprises me. Yeah, Thabo, Thabo Mbeki was a weird guy. We'll probably cover him on this podcast at some point. Also, Thabo Mbeki, would, whenever he got criticized, would often pull the uh, would often say uh, that they were only attacking him because he was black. Yeah, even he as was, he was just letting the bodies pile high from death from deaths from HIV/AIDS in the yeah, early two thousands. Yeah, he, we're probably going to cover him on this podcast. He was not great. Yeah. Um. Oh yeah, South Africa HIV denialism would be could be honestly more than one episode. Yeah. Depending on how deep you go, if you go really deep, you could probably make it honestly a four parter. Okay. Maybe yeah, we'll consider it. Uh, all of this comes from an interview he did for Vice in two thousand thirteen. Simon Mann. Yeah, as well as an interview he did for Al Jazeera. Uh, earlier than that. Uh, as for Severo Moto, he's mostly stayed out of the news. Uh, one time he claimed some hitmen tried to kill him in Croatia, because, but they let him go when they found out he was a Catholic. 
Uh, not sure what happened there. Uh, he got in legal trouble for arms trafficking in 2008, a trial which took five years, as well as a previous coup attempt in 1997. Uh, so he's getting some kind of intelligence or government connections. Spanish language media says he has connections to former Prime Minister Jose Maria Aznar of the Partido Popular, the main conservative party in Spain, and that Aznar's party gave him a salary for a while. The exact term used in the Spanish language press translates to accounting B. Uh, which in the Spanish press is a form of accounting where you underreport your income to the tax agency. Basically, they were illegally funneling money to Moto since at least his 1993 campaign. Uh, he was in. There's a lot more about Moto. We will do an episode on him at some point. All right. Anything else? Uh, let's see. Um, Moto was involved in another coup in 2017 when the OBN government killed a mercenary. If you want to know more about human rights abuses in Equatorial Guinea, Severo Moto's many coup attempts, and their oil businesses, I'm going to link to a piece from Human Rights Watch in the description. It is in Spanish, uh, but if you guys want us to pull that thread and do a full episode on Severo Moto, I might translate it for the pod. Honestly, you could probably find stuff on a lot of NGOs in general for that yeah. this kind of thing. Yeah, just look for NGO stuff. Uh, I watched a video of him speaking. He's shockingly measured, very calm, sort of standard liberal language. Obiang or Amoto? Amoto. So Simon Mann's exact words, by the way, per The Guardian, were, it was like an official operation. The governments of Spain and South Africa were giving the green light. You've got to do it. He even said that Asnar would have been willing to send in the Spanish army to maintain order and support the coup and would have recognized the new government. One more quote from our boy uh, Kraus Steele. Simon told me that I had to meet one of the investors in this project and that Greg would introduce me. I was introduced to someone at Lanceria Airport near Johannesburg who didn't give me his name. I gave him mine, and it apparent. And it, after a while, it became apparent that the man was Mark. He came up from Cape Town because Mark Thatcher perpetually thinks he's in a spy movie. Uh, he was apparently involved in directly testing the military helicopter, which is very funny when you think about his penchant for crashing race cars. Wait, they just. Ch- Wait, this guy, they saw what this guy's history with cars and, were, and said, oh, a helicopter is like a car except, fu- except 10 times heavier. And instead of just, and, and it also can, uh, cr- instead of just going at 70 miles per hour, it can crash down at terminal velocity. Let's have him fly it. Yes. Uh, somehow he didn't kill everyone. So good on him. In 2016, he was briefly in the news because his name was in the Panama Papers. Uh, and it said he was, he owned a house in Barbados. So we know he lives there part of the time. Or he could just be doing it. Or he could just be doing it as a tax dodge. But no, actually. Well, yeah, but he would still have to live there temporarily. But he might just do it like like a month out of the year. or something. Yeah, maybe. The articles about Margaret Thatcher's death said he flew in from London to Barbados, or from to from Barbados to London. Uh, so he lives there part of the year. But in the end, it doesn't matter. He won. He has spent his entire adult life doing financial crimes and corruption, and he's gotten away with it. He has at least 60 million Great British Pounds, roughly 71 million uh, 300,000 US dollars, and he's fine. He is a literal baron. He has multiple properties in various cities, and there's nothing either of us can do about it. He is simultaneously extremely um, funny and uh, just insignificant but also extremely in, like extremely involved in influential events yes also you know, known as this podcast bread and butter he's kind <laughs> of he's a bit like a british forest gump if you think about it yeah in a lot of ways he is and where he just kind of accidentally steps into situations except forrest gump was a was a kind-hearted if uh less than intelligent man margaret that or mark thatcher just kind of 
is awful. Yeah. Um, he has multiple properties in various cities. He was handed the world, and he took it. There's nothing left to say, so I'll end on a short quote from a Guardian article from 2004. Mark Thatcher is, quote, A fixer, wheeler-dealer, middleman, and one-time self-styled playboy, Sir Mark, 51, who inherited his baronetcy last year when Sir Dennis died at 88, can be in turn cocky, aloof, and arrogant. He once boasted he was responsible only to three people, his mother, himself, and God. Signing off, I'm Gabe. And I'm Rose. And this has been Running Unopposed. Our email is runningunopposedpod at gmail.com. Our theme song is courtesy of Official Remix Maniacs on Instagram. And our Twitter is at opposedpod. Happy New Year again, everybody. We hope you had a good New Year. Who are we covering next week? Uh, Undecided. Have some ideas. Possibly uh, former Israeli Prime Minister Menachem Begin. But uh, we will find out next week. All right. Stay tuned next week for another Gabe episode. And until then, listener, have a good week. See you then.